Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. Andrew Peel is the founder and managing principal of Peel Passive House Consulting and one of only a handful of Canadian-based Passive House certifiers accredited by the German Passive House Institute. Prior to forging out on his own, Andrew worked in a variety of projects across Europe, including managing the UK government's Carbon Saving Technologies Database and Energy Saving Trust's Best Practice Helpline. He also managed and delivered Passive House, Code for Sustainable Homes, Wind Turbine Development, and Thermal Modeling projects, and organized Passive House tours. He also contributed to the Energy Saving Calculation methodology for the UK regulators and the Passive House Institute. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right into this episode. So thank you for coming on the podcast today, Andrew. It's, it's excellent to meet you. Well, and thank you, Kelly, for this opportunity. I love uh, speaking about Passive House at any opportunity. <laughs> awesome. And, um, and so how did you become interested in Passive House specifically? Uh, mine might be a non-traditional route to Passive House. So I was actually studying renewable energy in Germany, uh, doing a master's there. And I just realized in the course of my studies that it was actually easier to save a kilowatt hour of energy than, than try to find different ways of producing it. Uh, and so that veered me into energy efficiency and ultimately energy efficiency in buildings. And being in Germany, I happened upon the Passive House Institute um, and was fortunate to, to get a position there. And so I, I worked there for some time. And uh, that's really where I laid the foundations of my Passive knowledge. So what we have you on to talk about specifically is um, a project that you've been talking about quite a bit, uh, Scott Subaru dealership in Canada. And can you tell us a little bit why, uh, about why it's so important to talk about this project? Um, yeah, I think um, for one, it's a beacon project. It's the first of in the world, right? We're very proud to be part of uh, this, and you know, really have to acknowledge the owner for making that commitment. You know, uh, Garrett uh, Scott from the Scott uh, Group of uh, Car Dealerships. It's a family-run business for 50 years. Um, and, you know, to, to really showcase, hey, this is possible. I mean, pacifists and car dealerships generally, before this project, they were not spoken in the same sentence, right? Um, and so right. Uh, being able to demonstrate to, to North America, to the world, like, hey, this is possible, right? And I think that's one thing that Passivos has been great at is showing people what's possible and then others can follow uh, in, their, in their footsteps. Yeah, absolutely. And um, diving in on that project a bit more, what was the biggest challenge that your team faced through design and construction? Uh, certainly numerous challenges. There was, that was probably the most challenging project we've, we've worked on in Passive House. Wow. Um, I think the ventilation was the most challenging. You're dealing with the car exhaust. Uh, I know there have been projects, including some that we've worked on with commercial kitchens. You're dealing with kitchen exhaust, and, and that's a challenge. This is kind of next level because... Um, it's very difficult uh, to do heat recovery on this, uh, and the rates can be quite high. I mean, for a small repair shop, it was about 2,400 CFM, which was many times the actual background ventilation rate that would be required in, in such a space. And so we, we you know, exhausted our, our um, 
the options for heat recovery, in the end, none of the manufacturers would actually warranty their equipment for use in heat recovery with car exhaust. Right, uh, kitchen exhaust. You can do that. It tends to be expensive, but there are solutions with car exhaust. We 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 couldn't find a, a viable solution, so we had to come up with other creative ways of really limiting uh, the losses from from that that system. Okay, excellent. So you did end up just uh, exhausting that directly, and then providing makeup air, but finding other solutions to limit the overall energy consumption of the project. Exactly. Wow. And what was the biggest mistake that was made during design and construction process? Um, it's it's actually not an uncommon one in Passive House where uh, the detailing isn't worked up early enough. I mean, just due mm-hmm. to the nature of how ultimately the client chose to, to contract um, the project, um, a lot of the detail wasn't uh, designed up front and so went into construction, not having all the, particularly the envelope solutions um, decided. Okay. And so then it, it ended up uh, falling on the contractor who didn't have pastors experience, but they were, uh, they actually, one of the key guys had a design build experience. So he, he kind of straddled both worlds. So we were able to work effectively with him to come up with solutions, but unfortunately they were in situ. And so we didn't end up coming up with the most cost-effective solutions. So looking back, you know, doing it again, there's certainly um, uh, improvements, particularly from the cost side that we could make uh, if we were to do, do this again. Interesting. Yeah. And I see that issue, uh, obviously, a lot in sort of standard or, or at least non-passive house construction that the design is ongoing as the construction is ongoing. Um, and sometimes you know, lagging only a week or so bef- behind uh, in terms of coordination, at least. So it's interesting to see that that challenge comes up even on projects where the owner was very committed, it sounds like, from the beginning mm-hmm. um, to Passive House. Even then, you still have uh, issues getting everything kind of pen to paper before construction starts. Yeah, exactly. And one, one of the things is, you know, these these business owners, they're not developers, they're not from mm-hmm. of the construction world. So they don't have an intimate knowledge of 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 the process, right? And so, you know, they're trying to do it, they're, you know, relying on others, the architect and whatever, but they're still you know, they um, they have a different mentality, right? So when they look at like design fees, they're not used to dealing with that. So they're like, well, okay, well, we've got to limit that. Like, why am I spending a lot of money on design fees, right? It's the building I want to build. So, you know, that kind of dynamic exists. Um, so, you know, somewhat understandably, they just, they're not used to the, the process, right? But again, you know, if you, you were doing it again, he understands the process now. So I think things would be, would be different the next time. Yeah, excellent. That's a great point. What was the most important thing, whether it's a person or a process or a technology that was uh, critical in driving the success of the project? Keeping the client committed, right? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, they, they, they had enthusiasm for the project. And, you know, when, when you get into budgetary issues or timelines or whatever, um, you know, he's running a business. So, uh, you know, uh, keeping him focused on not just, okay, we, I need a building for my operations, like keep the right. long-term in mind, don't make short-term decisions now. And so the, you know, uh, a couple of us on the team were instrumental in kind of keeping him on board. Again, he's, he, he was, um, committed ultimately. It's just, it's easy to lose sight of the bigger picture at, at times. So I think just ongoing reassurance, reinforcement of like what the goals are ultimately, uh, was, was crucial to, you know, keeping, keeping things on track. Yeah. And that's an excellent point. I think 
in life probably is to have a stated vision up front. And I think that's part of the sort of integrated design process is have that stated goal up front and then make sure that everybody's holding each other accountable to those goals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, making that commitment. And then obviously on, on day two, when something's on fire or something gets delayed or whatever, literally or figuratively on fire, I guess, um, then you can kind of refer back to those stated goals. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And so now that you have a little bit of data and you mentioned the, the data, and I think you had posted a blog post on this too, so we can link to that in the show notes. Um, but you know, can you describe a little bit how is the building actually performing compared to its peers, compared to the energy model? Yeah, this is a in a way a bit of a unique situation in Passive House um, because uh, what we have is a, um, comparable buildings, right? So normally, you know, developers building uh, say an apartment building, and they're like, oh, you could build it to code, you could build it to passivos, but those you don't build it to both. Like you're not building two buildings side by side and then can compare how does it actually compare versus, you know, in, in some cases, theoretical modeling. Um, right. So we had, okay, well, we designed and built this, uh, the the Subaru dealership, um, uh, but he had in the, in the family business, they had two other uh, directly comparable uh, buildings that existed and been operating for a while. One was twice the size and one was half the size, but both had repair shops, similar uses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then we were able to collect data in a similar uh, timeline for the three different projects. This is just overall utility bills. We don't have, he hasn't installed a monitoring system. Um, so we don't have detailed um, information, um, but just looking at the utility bills, which includes everything, uh, water, um, you know, gas and uh, electricity, um, sewage, all that. Um, we see compared to the other buildings between 60, 64% reduction in utility bills, right? And we didn't do anything on this project to really limit the water use and sewage. So I'd assume that those would have comparable um, expenses. So actually, potentially energy savings are a bit higher than that on the, on the project because if you take out the portion of non-energy costs and utility bills. That's excellent. And you didn't, you didn't end up having the breakdown between uh, energy costs and water costs, unfortunately. Uh, no, he, hadn't, he hasn't provided. I mean, he, it's uh, sometimes difficult to get um, uh, All the information because he's, yeah. well, it's also, he's a very busy business person. So it's not necessarily always his uh, priority, right? Um, so we managed to get right. some, some utility data and I think they're going to be sharing further in the, in the future. Um, so yeah, I think That's hopefully excellent. we'll get, and maybe they'll eventually install a monitoring system as well. Yeah, great. And I, um, I was actually just having a discussion this morning about that gap between sort of the the performance uh, monitoring after the fact. How do you even get those that data once the building is built? Obviously, it was built for a specific purpose that the the people engaged with the building are now focused on. So that's an excellent point. Um, but it's great that you were able to get some data and you were able to compare and sixty percent savings, sixty mm. to sixty five or or more. That's that's pretty incredible. No, definitely. And I want to circle back to your comment on the. Modeling versus reality. I think it's a it's a sensitive subject, maybe in the industry a little bit, and it's one that's near and dear to my heart because I um, I live a lot in the kind of commissioning world, and the difference between what we write down on paper, or what we put into the software, and what actually exists uh, in real life. And um, so I am curious. You you mentioned that difference between if you have uh, you know an energy model that's built to compare to a made up building or a baseline building uh, that, you know, it's not necessarily created to decide, you know, what the 
actual energy consumption will be at the end of the day. Um, passive house model, uh, can you describe to us a little bit what that looked like for this building and whether um, the energy model, like did it reflect uh, the post-consumption information that you were getting or you weren't really able to compare because you didn't get that granular uh, energy data? Yeah, so even with just a whole uh, energy, like what's the overall energy use of the building, we, we haven't gotten that data. So I think eventually yeah. we'll, we'll be able to report be- back. Um, so unfortunately, we can't make that direct comparison. Uh, and we, we didn't build an, uh, like a code reference or we didn't even model like one of their other existing buildings to get kind of calibration. Because at the end of the day, we did have to make estimates about repair shop energy as an example. Like, I don't think there's any data on how much does an air compressor get used in a car dealership in a year right or or a car hoist or whatever right so we make yeah. reasonable uh, estimates based on uh, owner feedback of their other how they use their other buildings right um, but even if we could just separate that out and get like the 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 other you know heating cooling hot water use lighting all that separated from the repair shop we could start to make that comparison again we don't have um, yeah, data this that point. So um, how it compares yeah. to the models, difficult to say, but I'd certainly say that I'd expect the heating and cooling loads and, and the um, uh, annual energy demand for heating and cooling to be very close to the model because we've seen that consistently with, with passive buildings. Generally, they, they have good monitoring on that side that's in different co- climates, different countries shown that there's a good match, right? Uh, let's call it not auxiliary electricity, but other uses. Again, like mm. car repair shop. Process loads or you know, yeah, other uses. I, I could expect there would be a deviation there because it was a bit of, um, you know, best engineering guesses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that takes us back maybe – We've done a lot of work on larger uh, buildings, even you know multifamily. It's still residential, but the loads are going to look a lot different than a single-family home. So when you kind of build up, uh, obviously there's lots of examples of single-family homes and the data that and the energy that they use, and there's lots of points of comparison. And um, and then when you get to some of these specialty use types, you don't have that point of comparison anymore. So that's really um, what's interesting. Yeah. Well, we'd be excited to hear any mm-hmm. further data that you, uh, that you are able to share. We also, um, looked at that sort of comparison of energy model to reality in some of the buildings, newer, larger, uh, passive house buildings in New York, um, to figure out where the gaps are. And is there, um, you know, on that process load side, perhaps, is there training that needs to be done for the energy modelers, for example, um, or other opportunities to kind of make a more robust model so that we can have better prediction of how the building will actually consume energy and meet those loads. Yeah, definitely. Has anything needed any tweaking, um, any updates on uh, the mechanical side or the system side? Not that we've heard of. So if there's been communication, for instance, with the mechanical engineers, we haven't been directly involved. I don't think so. I know after it had been occupied, I think there were some, I'll call it recommissioning, but the, the ventilation system hadn't been quite set up from a controls perspective. We actually had an intermittent part of the um, way of reducing ventilation loads was an intermittent operation. Um, and uh, that hadn't been set up properly. So, you know, the, the ventilation system was running all the time so that they, when we saw the initial commissioning report, like, okay, well, now this needs to be adjusted. So, uh, but that was part of, you know, it was, it went through the passive certification process. So that kind of third party check was there to make sure, okay, how it was designed from a passive perspective 
um, operationally is that actually being implemented? And so that was caught and then rectified. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think maybe I read something else that you wrote about the a project that was, you know, maybe designed to Passive House versus actual certification. So mm-hmm. um, maybe talk a little bit more about what the differences you see there are and the the importance of kind of that verification layer. Yeah, I think so that, I mean, both through design uh, as well as construction and commissioning, you know, is what, um, particularly what's being modeled, reflective of of the evolving design. And we already talked in this project about how some of the details weren't really worked out. Well, if they aren't worked out and then during construction, even it's not ideal to do this, but if you're not coming up with the solutions and then reflecting that back into the energy model, well, you've already got a disconnect that's, that's growing or carrying forward through the construction, right? Um, and then commissioning, you know, you have an independent commissioning agent, they're they're doing their thing, you know, and you, you trust them or whatever. But if things haven't been communicated properly about how it needs to be commissioned or like what's, um, uh, you know, standard commissioning versus kind of this enhanced or, you know, like full with a you know, particularly energy efficiency in mind versus just simple operation of make sure there's air getting into the building or heat circulating yeah. around, right? To me, that that third party check assurance for, for the building owners is, is, uh, is critical. It's like, yes, does this, does this align what's been done versus what was expected? And that what was expected was that clearly uh, laid out. Yeah, that's an excellent point because we we also see that all the time. You mentioned the the envelope details not being worked out 100%. Also on the uh, ventilation system, the sequence of operations probably wasn't 100% figured out. So the commissioning um, provider can only test to <laughs> what's been designed or or what their best guess is once um, once the design is over. So that's an excellent point. And what are one of the lessons that you would take away into your next project? Uh, yeah, it's a challenge because this this continues to come up, unfortunately, where we, you know, there's just not enough scope or how the project goes. Like we don't figure things out fully during the design. It's a lesson mm-hmm. that keeps coming up in Passivus in general, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, it's like, have fun, I guess, you know, we haven't figured this, we haven't cracked the nut on you know, being able to consistently have this in all projects because our client, I mean, I think similar to, uh, to SWA that of, you know, your client type probably varies and, you know, it's new, new approaches, new. Uh, so, you, you know, you, you figure things out maybe in one space, but then trying to transfer that to another, you know, client type or whatever, it's, it can be challenging. So um, I guess it's a lesson we haven't like figured out how to deal with that fully, um, right? It's continuing to navigate it, um, but that that continues to be a critical piece. I mean, it worked out in this project, but like I said, it, we you know there are definitely more cost-effective solutions we could have implemented. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and it's hard to you know in cases where you do determine it upfront and it saves money. It's hard to say what what the money that you didn't spend, right? Mm. It's hard to sort of describe what that would be. And so um, we actually have a project now we're trying to do that where we're we're trying to do parallel kind of conventional and optimized uh, as best we can. And then even working with contractors that are already on board to price out different options so we can really see this is actually the financial impact of these decisions. So we're hoping we, you know, we're still navigating it. We're hoping we can get to that so we can kind of report to say, hey, here's here's some real value uh, you're driving from these these fundamental changes uh, in, in design, right? 
That's excellent. Yeah, I know we've run into a lot of problems. People ask, what's the added cost of Passive House? And uh, how do you really tease out all the different things that are just required for Passive House? It can be really difficult to have that kind of breakdown in terms of the costs throughout the project for each individual thing. Because at the end of the day, you're just paying for a full project. And so, uh, and sometimes things get lost in the noise in terms of the roll up. What are, is that what you were finding too? Is that why you're looking into it with this study? Or project, yeah, exactly. The, you know, and I mean, our we're we're trying to more and more turn the 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 approach into what's your budget? How do we make passive house work within it? Right, so many mm-hmm. factors of influencing uh, the price, the the cost right. of construction, right? Um, and so it's easy to if something new like passive house to point your finger if it comes out over budget. Um, so we're a big proponent of yeah setting the budget and working within that, and you know doing enough detailed design throughout the design and getting it costed throughout, you know, meaningfully costed right. with somebody who understands passive house and can cost it appropriately uh, so that you get a good steer from the beginning. This is what it's going to cost. So you don't have a surprise at tender like, oh, we're X percent over budget. Now we need a value engineer. Passive house is often one of those things that gets value engineered out. Yeah, absolutely. And so you you mentioned, mentioned recommending um, costing early by someone who knows Passive House, is that necessarily the uh, the f- firm that will ultimately do the construction and um, you're having success in that way? Or are, are you having a third party cost ed- estimator that has more experience with Passive House brought on kind of early? I'm, I'm a big proponent of having the contractors on board, um, particularly mm-hmm. the GC, uh, you know, if, if possible, you know, envelope and M&E uh, contractors as well. Even if that's in a design assist capacity where maybe they still have to bid on the full project because maybe because of procurement rules, like if it's a public body, they can't just um, like hire the GC up front as well if that's not if they're not as if it's not like a design build right. or something. Right. So we have to navigate that. That's where it's interesting with the private clients, like business owners, where there's more flexibility. They get to choose how do I want to procure this? Uh, the key is there and then just getting there early enough in the process to be able to influence uh, uh, how they procure. Um, but yeah, if we can get contractor feedback, ideally we find they have great finger on the pulse in terms of you know material prices and other ways of doing things that may, may be more cost effective, right? Right. So yeah, we find that the most beneficial approach. And for this dealership, um, do you know anything about how much this project costs versus those other two uh, that you alluded to? No, the owner has not revealed that to us, unfortunately. I'm <laughs> okay. um, uh, not sure. I mean, I was surprised at the savings and utilities, actually. Okay. So uh, we don't have a bearing. But I mean, I, I think, you know, from, from a, like, a life cycle cost perspective, I think it's actually come out more favorable than I had uh, maybe expected, given mm-hmm. like I know it's more expensive than it needs to be. Gas, natural gas is really cheap in, I mean, it's unusual. It's a heat pump based heating cooling system. It's unusual to do that in, in Alberta. Uh, so I was, it was kind of the energy prices were working against us. Um, mm-hmm. But that coupled with, you know, there, there's been anecdotal um, comments from staff saying, oh, the air quality is much better. Uh, okay. We don't have any data per se, and I haven't checked in with the owner about, well, have you seen a decrease in like sick days or, mm. you know, also customers have, have um, commented on, on the, 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 the indoor environment, right? So there's, I'm sure there's kind of, there's business benefits. How do you quantify that's a, a challenge? But um, yeah, I think it's yeah. more than just the, the energy savings uh, that, uh, that have accrued to the owner. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's great to get that little bit of anecdotal evidence. And obviously there's a lot of a lot of difficulty getting those co-benefits kind of quantified. Mm. This was excellent. I think you did a great job of explaining, you know, these case studies, maybe one project, uh, but it shows that it's possible. And so you can lay the foundation for others to follow. What What is the role of Passive House overall in the building industry kind of more broadly? Is it the standard that every building should be built to? Should it be built into code? What, it, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, I mean, definitely initially it's, it's showing people it's possible. So going back to earlier in the, in the podcast about, hey, this is a new type of project beacon, you know, other car dealership, uh, car dealer owners might um might get inspired by it or others might say, Oh, my, my car dealership can do this. Okay. Well, maybe we can do this in this like industrial building or, uh, so there's that. Um, I mean, if I had my way, like everyone would be doing passive house, right. Um, you know, whether that's realistic, um, or not both from an industry perspective, from a, a compliance or code, uh, building code perspective, uh, you know, I guess maybe it's open to be seen, but I think it can, you know, set the standard that we can aspire to and, and move as closely as we can to the standard. Excellent. Uh, taking us full circle, are you, uh, now that you've gotten the buildings as efficient as you can get them through the Passive House standard, are you also doing some uh, renewable consulting to to offset and get to that net zero? Or how are you seeing that uh, portion of the industry? Um, yeah, we, it tends to be a kind of add on, a kind of nice to have if, if it's mm-hmm. within the scope of, uh, the project budget or, or whatever else. Um, actually this, this project I mentioned where we're trying to do that cost comparison of des- fundamental design changes. It's actually a condo project here in Ontario, uh, 64 units, um, you know, very progressive forward thinking uh, developer. And there's an opportunity to integrate building integrated uh, photovoltaics. Um, and the, the, the actually a company we're, I've been talking to, they have an interesting business model of uh, shifting the cost from capital cost to ongoing cost and kind of a shared revenue model. And that's an attractive, could be an attractive uh, thing for a developer who doesn't want to have extra additional capital costs. Mm. You know, it's raises the sale price. So if that can be shifted to operational, that could allow, uh, open the doors for integration of, of uh, P, you know, PV uh, electricity. And we haven't yet explored how much could we generate from that, right? I know in these taller buildings, it can be challenging. So uh, there, yeah, that, that's to be seen, but, you know, they think there's, there's opportunity there. And then, uh, you know, another side of things is um, embodied carbon, right? This is actually a mass timber project. So the structure is mass timber. And then also, you know, looking at refrigerant mitigation, right? Another key piece now, uh, growing in awareness, you know, how do you, how do you mitigate um, heating, cooling system, refrigerant uh, use in buildings? Um, so we're trying to manage that as well. So, you know, it could be a lot of interesting factors. Um, and the neat thing about this project is there. Uh, the developer is building three of the same building. So we're doing a lot of the figuring out on the first building, and then we'll be able to replicate it and apply the lessons learned to the subsequent projects or buildings. Excellent. That's awesome. I, I love to see that. And so sometimes the lessons get learned more slowly than I uh, than mm. I always hope. But mm. um, I think that's an uh, excellent thing. And one thing that we're seeing too is, you know, when it's their second or third passive house or um, – you know, high performance project that they're, they are, you know, the project team is able to handle different challenges or to come up with ideas up front or see those envelope designs up front, that sort of thing. So that's excellent. 
So you mentioned embodied carbon, um, and I know uh, one of the specifications, obviously, of Passive House is high-performance insulation, and uh, I'm sure you had to use a lot of insulation on the um, the Subaru project, the car dealership, to make up for some of that uh, car exhaust that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about um, anything that you've done or that you're thinking around um, embodied carbon and the use of, um, you know, insulation materials? And is there an extent to which, you know, a building, there's diminishing returns on um, installing additional insulation or you haven't seen that yet? Um, no, and our, we tend to work on unique projects, not not fully, um, but we're we, you know we don't go through a hundred of the same building, right? To really right. Uh, really refine things and really look in detail at some of these things. Um, uh, yeah, so you know we haven't come to any conclusions about that. Um, we really drive home simplicity of HVAC, and we particularly in the Canadian climate, mm-hmm. we don't have quite the same cooling loads, so we are trying to push the envelope on simplified uh, heating cooling systems that can help reduce. Uh, reduce the um, capital cost of the HVAC system. And sometimes to achieve that, you're like, okay, well, if we can, you know, we might have to add a bit more insulation, right, mm-hmm. to, to get, get drive those loads down to make it work, right? So it's a bit of a fine-tuning, really ba- a balancing act. So sometimes you think of like the, the, the annual energy savings for the extra insulation, insulation, you're like, well, is that really payback? No, but if you look holistically, okay, that can make sense. Now, applying the embodied carbon perspective, we've not uh, delved into that. We'd, we'd love to. I don't know if we have scope on this project to, to analyze the the embodied mm-hmm. carbon. It's certainly something we're keeping in mind. Uh, you know, we, we generally try to avoid like spray foam where possible. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's realities of non-combustible construction, which, you know, sometimes limit your, your insulation options, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's an ongoing challenge for the industry and maybe a, a, a challenge to the manufacturers to, you know, re- reformulate or, or re-envision their products. Yeah, and start to quantify and and provide the information to you know it's hard to determine what where that um, product has come from when we don't have all the information from the manufacturer. So I know you've talked about I think a little bit the complementary uh, or maybe this was someone else I don't want to attribute to you but there's like a complementary nature of lead and passive house at times like you know there's the energy efficiency kind of honing in on that and then making sure that you maintain the indoor air quality and the comfort um, kind of in the passive house realm but lead might cover all those other sort of things around embodied carbon and you know making sure manufacturers are doing those sorts of disclosures so that we can look at another lens like you said yeah i think i guess yeah i mean i agree but i didn't speak to that in this podcast but certainly (laughs) that complementary nature of finding the alignment um and working together to you know deal with address as many of the issues that constructing buildings um leads to right or could lead to Right. right so yeah definitely there's a good marriage there that can happen and when uh, we have you back on the podcast in five years, what will we be talking about then? Oh, um, I don't know. Passive House Airport or Space <laughs> Station. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And hopefully some of that uh, additional data from some of the projects that you've been working on for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I think actually a hospital, if we can bring this, you know, they're building, working on a Passive House hospital in Germany. They're... Mm. I think they were supposed to have been done. I don't know. We'll, we'll see that where that goes. I'm going to be monitoring it. If we can uh, take what they've done there and, and start to apply it here. I mean, 
obviously with our current situation, you know, air quality and distribution stuff is a critical one and all the more so in a place like a hospital. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point around all that, the legislation that's going on around reducing carbon in buildings and kind of low, low carbon futures. I think there's a lot of discussion around um, what needs a carve out, what kind of building needs, needs sort of a carve out for that, that this law or this rule doesn't apply to me. Mm. Um, and I think those sorts of, um, projects that you're saying, these like champion projects that a car dealership can do it. So can you kind of mm -hmm. thing? Uh, I think having a hospital in the U S that would be excellent. Yeah. Um, well, we look forward to hearing about, uh, your hospital project <laughs> in five <laughs> <Yeah>. years. <laughs> Whether it's us or somebody else, as long as it gets done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was excellent to speak with you. Well, thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. To learn more about the Subaru car dealership or Passive House in general, check out our show notes at swinter.com slash podcasts. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We believe our world is not as sustainable, healthy, safe, equitable, or inclusive as it needs to be, and we continually strive to develop and implement innovative solutions to improve the built environment. If you want to join us in our mission, visit swinter.com careers. A big shout out to our production team, Dylan Martello, Alex Mirabile, Heather Breslin, and of course, my co-host, Rob Aldridge. We thank you for listening and we will see you next time.